Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are revisiting a conversation I had back in 2018 with Dr. Paul Barrett. What does he study? Well, one of the coolest topics in the world, the interaction between herbivorous dinosaurs and plants. Now, whenever you see reconstructions of dinosaurs, it's usually focused on the dinosaurs themselves. You see some plants in the background. But these organisms, as with any living thing today, couldn't exist without the plant life that supported them. And plant-eating dinosaurs were among the largest organisms to ever walk this earth. So it goes without saying that they would have really affected the plants around them and vice versa. And that's exactly what this conversation is about. Before we get to that, I just want to say that this podcast would not happen without people supporting it. And there's a lot of great ways to do that. One of the best is to go pick up a copy of my book. You can just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast and check in the show notes for that link. I thank everyone that has picked up a copy to date. It means the world to me. And again, it helps keep this show up and running. But that's entirely enough out of me. This is a really cool conversation, which is why I'm bringing it back out of the history books and piping it into your ears today. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Paul Barrett. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Paul Barrett, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Hi there, Matt. Nice to talk to you today. So as you said, my name is Paul Barrett. I'm one of the dinosaur researchers at the Natural History Museum in London. And I'm generally interested in lots of different aspects of dinosaur evolution, ranging from looking at their taxonomy all the way through to thinking about big evolutionary patterns. Wonderful. Uh, and it's interesting for the listeners to hear this and say, wait, you do dinosaurs, this is a plant podcast, but of the myriad things that you do, and I must say your research history is impressive, uh, one of the things you talk about and research is the interaction between plants and dinosaurs, correct? That's right, yeah. So my PhD actually was on dinosaur herbivory, so learning how dinosaurs adapted their skulls and their teeth in particular to dealing with the diet of plants, and then that led into thinking about more general questions to do with dinosaurs and their interactions with plants in terms of their ecology and evolution also. Excellent. Well, before we jump right into that, um, I think I speak for a lot of listeners when I say it's it's the obsession with dinosaurs and fossils starts early a lot of times. And dinosaurs are such a gateway drug, so to speak, into the world of science and, and ecology and just the world in general, the living world. Um, you know, was it always about dinosaurs? When did plants come into the mix? Has it always been a mix of the two? How did you get started down this path? Oh, for me, to be honest, it comes from an animal perspective. So when I was a kid, I was a nut on different kinds of animals, and extinct animals were a part of that. And I was interested equally in living and extinct animals of all kinds. And then from a relatively early age, dinosaurs was something that hooked me in and got me interested. But I went through a stage where I wanted to be a vet for a while. But then when I found out that vets have to work often really antisocial hours, <laughs> they also have to deal with animals that bite them and kick them, and you have to your hands in places where no one should be asked to put their hands. I just did that actually dead animals was the way forward. So they don't bite, they don't kick, they're just usually a bit dusty, uh, sometimes a bit heavy. Um, the difference with uh, 
dead animals, though, obviously, is that you don't have as much information as you do with a living animal. And actually, it's that kind of problem-solving aspects of being a paleontologist that really appeals. It's taking the relatively small amount of evidence we're left after the filter of the fossil record and then using that with information on living animals to come up with a good scenario for what they were actually doing when they were alive. And then for me, adding the extra information with the plants and on thinking about the ecology of these was kind of another nice interesting add-on thinking more holistically about how these things actually lived and interacted within an environment. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I love the detective work that goes into paleontology, and I get down the rabbit hole time and time again just being amazed at how much work goes into understanding fossils and specimens and, and just how much information can be gleaned from that. But I agree. There is a holistic view that needs to be considered here that, you know, dinosaurs, the period in which they're on Earth spans millions of years. And oftentimes people's introduction to them is these disembodied individuals. Oh, a Tyrannosaurus or a Pachycephalosaurus. But these were organisms within their environment interacting with the world just as any organism does today. Exactly. And those kinds of relationships we see around us all the time today, but they must have also existed in the past. And it's very likely that some of the interrelationships that we see have actually quite ancient origins and sometimes... The details of the casts might have changed, but the general patterns might be the same. Sure. So using principles of what we understand today about the natural world and applying them to the past. But to give a perspective here, before we really dive in, what time period or periods do you work with when it comes to dinosaurs? Because again, they span three major eras and there's a lot to be considered there. Where do you fit in? Well, actually, dinosaurs are still with us today, of course, because uh, ah. birds are living dinosaurs. So the dinosaurs I work on are all the extinct kinds that span from the Jurassic period, when, uh, from the Triassic period rather, when they first get going, about 235 million years ago, through to the big mass extinction event at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary about 66 million years ago. So, but the, the dinosaur, uh, if you like, their story is still continuing today with 11,000 living species of bird. <laughs> And obviously, um, birds and plants have a lot of complex interactions, too, which is a whole other story. Yes. So you kind of get this whole, like you said, holistic view of what was going on. So everyone listening will probably be familiar that there were meat-eating dinosaurs and there were plant-eating dinosaurs. But the plants that were around at this time were, were different, correct, than what we would expect to go outside and see today. Yeah, kind of. So many of the same plant groups that we are familiar with today are around, but the proportions of them were different. So plants that today are pretty rare or confined to specific kinds of environments were the more common and abundant types of plants back in the Mesozoic uh, when dinosaurs or the, the non-bird dinosaurs were at their height. So if we look around us today, we're in a world that's primarily dominated by flowering plants. There are a few areas of the world where that's not the case. So, for example, up in the Arctic tundra, where we still see things like conifers that form part of the dominant vegetation. But in general, most places around the world, almost everything we see is an angiosperm. But that's not true when we go back to the Triassic or Jurassic period, where we don't see angiosperms in the vegetation at all. And in fact, there's some debate over whether or not those uh, flowering plants are actually even alive during that early part of the Mesozoic era. Hmm. So... How do you begin to study this? You obviously have plant fossils and you have dinosaur fossils, but where do you find that nexus between the two? What kind of clues are you particularly looking for? 
So there are a few different things to look at. So I initially came at this as a dinosaur morphologist, looking at how dinosaur jaws and teeth are adapted for grinding and slicing and chewing different kinds of food. Uh, unfortunately, that's only so far that kind of work can take you. Uh, dinosaur dentitions and skulls are very good at dealing with plant food, but although it tells you that what the dinosaur can do with that plant food, whether it's slicing or whether it's pulping, it doesn't tell you what that plant food was. And there's relatively little in direct information from dinosaur fossils to tell you what a dinosaur was eating. So we'd hope for, say, fossilized gut contents, or maybe some evidence of little bits and pieces of plant stuck between the teeth, <laughs> or maybe from fossilized feces from coprolites to see what those animals are eating. But they're really, really rare for the herbivores. And that's because uh, plant material, as you digest it and as you break it down, unfortunately, basically turns to mush. Sure. So if you think about uh, what comes out of the back end of a cow or what comes <laughs> back end of an elephant it's soft it's pulpy it's very quickly dried and, and trampled into the environment it's relatively hard to um, fossilize um, herbivore poo whereas actually carnivore poo is much more common and that's because it has a lot of bone and bits of uh, chattered teeth and phosphate containing minerals in it which means that they're harder they're more preservable so we know a lot more about direct evidence of carnivores in a fossil record than herbivores okay. So there's only so far we can go at this from an animal perspective, just thinking about the actual fossil remains. So then where do you go? I mean, how do you base a career of research and an impressive one at that on scarce fossil records? I mean, what kind of clues do you end up looking for and, 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 and uh, you know, what form does that come in? So in this particular case, what we had to do was cast it a bit more widely. And um, in addition to look at uh, the dinosaurs, we also needed to learn more about the plants. So going and talking with my paleobotanical colleagues about the sorts of plants that are around and getting into that literature and working out where the different types of uh, plants were living, how abundant they were in different parts of the world and at different times. So characterizing the Mesozoic world, we have this largely very green world devoid of flowers from all of the Triassic and Jurassic and probably most of the Cretaceous. We see, instead of grasses forming that understory where we see grazing animals profiting today, we have an understory made up largely of ferns and in moister areas uh, accompanied by horsetails. Then slightly bigger plants, we would see things like cycads and their relatives, things like Benetitalians. And then getting into trees, we see largely a variety of different gymnosperm trees, conifers, tree ferns, and also ginkgo being much more mm. prevalent than it is today. And it's only really when we get into the Cretaceous, we start to see big changes in the vegetation with things like ginkgos and conifers becoming less prominent, and instead things like palms and other sorts of angiosperms taking over the vegetation. Until by the time that dinosaurs actually become extinct, we would see floras that are much more similar to those that we have around us today, where angiosperms are the dominant uh, uh, plants in those floras. Yeah, fascinating stuff to think about what food would have been available. And when I think of uh, things like a lot of ferns and cycads and, you know, monkey puzzle trees being a really great example of an extant gymnosperm lineage that would have been akin to something back then, those probably weren't all of that easy to contend with for an herbivore. Uh, now, what there's feedback, right? Any herbivore is going to shape the plant community, but the plant community will shape the herbivore. Do you see evidence for kind of a close coordination of the types of vegetation that were around and the types of herbivores that were able to contend with them? 
So these are exactly the sorts of questions we were going to do when we conducted our big projects on this. And this basically involved building big databases of where the different dinosaurs were, roughly the sorts of feeding mechanisms that they had, and where the different groups of plants were and how those distributions changed through time, and to see if those distributions changed in concert through time, which would, might prove that those groups were co-evolving or codependent on each other. So we would be looking for, for example, to see if cycads always co-evolved with a certain group of dinosaurs and whether or not their fortunes depended on whether those dinosaurs were still around or whether they became extinct and if their distributions matched up. So we spent a long time, I was working with a colleague of mine, Richard Butler, building these huge databases and then building maps through time to see how these different groups overlap with each other and whether those overlaps were maintained, whether they came and went in a predictable way or whether it was more random, uh, to try and get a handle on whether these big groups were actually influencing the distribution or the evolution of the other. Fascinating. So it's, it's heavy or heavily reliant on biogeography in a big sense. Absolutely. So this is literally visualizing distributions on a map at a particular time of contender groups of dinosaurs and plants that may have been interacting with each other and then seeing if those uh, ecological spatial relationships in are actually maintained through time. So what do you find? I mean, are there big patterns that are easily describable or is it a more nuanced story? What were some of the results of this very large data set uh, combination? To be honest, the results were actually quite disappointing. Oh, no. <laughs> there are some very, very elegant hypotheses that have been put out in the literature suggesting how changes in dinosaur communities through time might have impacted the plants that lived alongside them. So perhaps the two most um, uh, high profile of those ideas are one relating to the origin and spread of flowering plants and one relating to the decline of cycads. Okay. So the first of those basically suggests that changes in dinosaur feeding behavior from communities that were previously dominated by the big long-necked sauropod dinosaurs, which were feeding high up in trees, to communities that were dominated instead by dinosaurs that were browsing within the first meter or so of ground level, might have created disturbed ecological conditions that favored the development of angiosperms over that of conifers, because angiosperms are much more resistant to disturbance, they have faster life cycles, and it was suggested that maybe this big change in dinosaur browsing behavior might have facilitated the early spread of angiosperms at the expense of conifers. The other idea is to do with cycads, and it suggested that a number of dinosaur groups might have evolved to be cycad dispersers, and that as mm. those dinosaur groups became extinct, we might see declines in the distribution or the spread of cycads uh, around the world. So those were two of the ideas that we aimed to test. And unfortunately, what we found simply is that uh, the answers are ambiguous. Uh, the amount of data that we can get from the fossil record isn't really enough to be able to see uh, coordinated patterns of expansion and contraction of different plant groups and different dinosaur groups at the same time. So our answer was, these are really neat ideas, and these are big kind of macroevolutionary ideas. But at the moment, although those ideas are out there, we don't have strong evidence to support any of them. So although I really like the idea of dinosaurs being responsible for the origin of flowering plants, we can't actually say that that happened. In fact, I have a strong suspicion that they weren't that heavily involved hmm. in the origin of the group because at the same time that angiosperms really start getting going, 
We also know that social insects are on the rise and diversifying in types. Insects and plants have a very close ecological relationship. And also there are other things going on in the abiotic environment, like changes in atmospheric CO2 levels. And all of these things might have been influencing the origin of angiosperms, as well as the fact they're being predated by the big mega herbivores of the time too. So teasing apart all those different things is actually pretty hard. Yeah, I, uh, as someone who's worked heavily with uh, big, messy data sets where you don't have a lot of data that you really wish, I can empathize with that. But it is interesting, again, to put this into an ecosystem context that just because dinosaurs were the dominant organisms during this time period, obviously shaping the landscape, there's so many other factors within the ecological realm that must be considered. And like you said, this whole period is characterized by massive changes in climate as well as the uh, faunal associations. Absolutely. So we're in the Cretaceous, for example, we in a relatively warm world. There's no uh, polar ice. Uh, we do have cold seasons, uh, especially at the poles, but there's no permanent polar ice cap uh, on the world or at any time in the Mesozoic. So generally, we're looking at much warmer climate, uh, much more arid climate earlier on in the Mesozoic, which becomes wetter as we come closer towards the present. Uh, but all of these fluctuations are going on all the time must have had major impacts on the flora. The evolution of different sorts of um, plant feeding and pollinating insects would have also had a huge amount of input. There are also mammals and other types of animals evolving that also have close um, and intimate relationships with plants. So all of these different things are going on at the same time. I'd be very surprised if the dinosaurs weren't doing lots of things in terms of structuring plant ecology because they're big animals and in the same way that we see mega herbivores today in the African savanna, for example, they must have severely impacted the structure of the vegetation on a day-to-day uh, -day basis. They would have certainly had major impacts in terms of eating all the vegetation in small areas, pushing things over, hmm. uh, creating con disturbed conditions on the ground that may have affected germination and seed dispersal. They probably did disperse seeds because they ate plants and would have carried them around in their guts, possibly for considerable distances. Um, and they would have almost certainly been, to use a, a nice buzzy phrase that's come up recently, ecosystem engineers, <laughs> uh, in the way that they would have probably been creating certain types of habitat in the way that things like much smaller elephants and rhinos do today. Um, but unfortunately, capturing that kind of day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month ecology is very difficult from a fossil record that's time averaged over many tens of thousands, sometimes millions of years. Yeah, it is something really uh, staggering to get your head wrapped around just how rare it is for a fossilization event to occur. And then to think about all of the things we'll never or even very rarely get to see any sort of record of. No, absolutely. So you can probably almost hear me kind of banging my head against the table. <laughs> Uh, because these are the kinds of questions we would really like to address. And just occasionally we get staggeringly good one-on-one um, -on -one bits of evidence about specific dinosaurs or specific plants that tell us something very insightful about their ecology. But building these bigger pictures, there are lots of assumptions. There's lots of things that we are not quite good enough to capture because the data that we have to work with simply is a bit coarse-grained. Sure. So, for example it's almost certain that dinosaurs also had much more intimate co-evolutionary relationships with some plants. We see it among living birds and plants today uh, in terms of specific plant pollinators that are birds 
or in terms of um, specific seed dispersion syndromes, things like that. And it's very, very likely that dinosaurs were doing the same thing. Uh, but unfortunately, that very fine-grained fossil record is generally lacking, uh, which is really frustrating when we're trying to work out some of these things that we know must have been going on, but we just don't have these snapshots through time where we can't necessarily get that very detailed ecological yeah. information. Yeah. And so, yeah, again, going back to the fossil record, you mentioned earlier that you do have trace fossils, you do have the occasional copper light that shows up, and you definitely have dentition, which can kind of, I would think, assess what types or shapes of vegetation would have been going on. What, From what we do have, what do we know that different groups of dinosaurs were eating plant-wise or interacting with plant-wise? So from what we do have, we do know that a number, some dinosaurs were eating fruits, so that we have a beautiful skeleton of an ankylosaur armored dinosaur which has a stomach full of fruit uh, which suggests that at least from time to time that those animals were grubbing around on the forest floor or taking handfuls of low uh, growing fruit from uh, low growing trees. Uh, we also have a number of dinosaur coprolites that surprisingly have large amounts of fossil wood in them huh. and it's a lot which seems really weird. Wood is almost indigestible um, and it seems odd that these animals are eating large amounts of wood, and there's more than one example of this. So it could be that they're eating rotting wood that, say, for example, is rich in fungi decomposers, mm. and they get some nutrition from the decomposers within the wood. Or it could be a weird ecological circumstance where, for example, uh, other food isn't available on a seasonal basis, and they're forced to eat uh, rough kind of indigestible food as a simply as a means of getting by. So there are some really weird things they do, but we also have examples where they're a bit more regular, if you like, where they're stuffed with pine needles, things that you can actually imagine these things trying to make a living out of. But And there are one or two examples also of uh, dinosaurs with little phytoliths stuck to their teeth or in their crop lights, which means yeah. that the latest dinosaurs were occasionally eating grass. But from what we know about the fossil record of grasses, they seem to have been fairly rare, certainly not forming grasslands that we're familiar with. And these seem to be relatively unusual occurrences from very close to the end of the age of dinosaurs when grasses are just starting to evolve for the first time. Wow. So a new player and uh, someone was moving in to take care of that niche, you know, right out of the gates, which I guess in the big picture sense, really kind of tells you that as soon as things were coming on board, niches evolved just as quickly as, as organisms, right? Absolutely. Animals and plants are always going to take those evolutionary and ecological opportunities, and the ones that find them are the ones that are going to prosper and diversify and go on to found uh, long-living lineages. Sure. So some of your work looks also at amniotes, so animals like the either predated mammals or, or were mammals at this point. So when you see this shift from a dinosaur-dominated ecosystem to where the mammals started to dominate, obviously birds were still around, um, you know, were, were, were they using different, obviously the plants were changing too, how, did, how does the picture kind of change and is it easier because it's slightly more recent or is it just as difficult as, as the dinosaur work? It actually gets easier through time because uh, the fossil record gets more complete as we get towards the recent. There's been fewer chances for the rocks to be eroded away. There's more rock forming closer to the surface. So in general, there's a phenomenon that paleontologists call the pull of the recent 
which is basically that we generally have better information on things that are closer to us in time and further away. So for my colleagues that work on the evolution of uh, mammalian herbivory, they actually get quite a lot of other information uh, that we simply don't get. There are more examples of coprolites and of gut contents. Uh, there's excellent evidence in particular from looking at things like the tiny microscopic scratches left behind on teeth huh. uh, by, by plants. So this is a whole field in itself where the shape, uh, size, orientation, and length of those uh, scratches, and also have little pits that form in the tooth enamel, actually give quite a good indication of whether the animal's eating leaves or fruits or seeds or grasses. So you can get start to get a lot more specific uh, by the time we're working with mammals after the uh, end Cretaceous mass extinction. And also, we know a lot more about mammal dentitions and how they work because obviously we have a lot more examples of living mammals to mm. use as examples. Whereas the only living dinosaurs are birds, which don't have teeth and have very specialized beaks instead. And as a result, they don't give us so many clues onto the nuances of what might be going on with dinosaur teeth. Mammal, whereas mammals, there's a huge amount of work on what their teeth look like, how very specific tooth types are adapted to different types of plants and different types of grinding or crushing or pulping. Yeah. And again, just reharkening this idea of the kind of detective work that goes in to be able to not only specialize, but know enough about scratches and dentition to make these, uh, you know, projections and inferences. It's, it's remarkable the attention to detail that's required to do those sorts of things. It is. And some of these things, I think this uh, focus, what we call dental microware, looking at these tiny scratches. This is a field that really only started in the 1980s, uh, pioneered actually on people working on human evolution because they really have so few remains to work with that they try and make as much as they can from those remains. And so looking for different ways of studying, say, early human diet. And from there, it moved into other areas of paleontology. But by doing experimental work on living animals, using living analogs, um, they can come up with very convincing arguments about how these different types of food abrade the teeth differently. And then we can work back from those living examples to see what they, uh, if we can identify those in fossils. But some of this evidence, as you say, is very, very um, difficult to see if you don't know it's there. And certainly going back 30 or 40 years, people wouldn't have thought of this as an approach. So they may have, when they were getting that fossil out of the rock, accidentally erased the fossil of that evidence by over-polishing uh. or uh, by using different kinds of preservatives on the teeth. But now we're much more careful and try and preserve even those kinds of tiny, tiny microscopic marks. Uh, and we have to be very careful that when we're looking for those little scratches on teeth, that we're actually looking at the scratches that were made when the animal was alive. <laughs> and not ones that have been put on it by the skilled technicians that have been removing the rock from the surfaces of those teeth. Wow. And there are ways that we can do that, but it's one of those cautionary things we have to keep an eye on. Yeah, probably best not to let it happen first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, work, my own work, because I've also looked for these tiny scratches on dinosaur teeth, and they are there, and they give us a lot of information about the direction of the jaws relative to each other, so telling if the jaws are moving up and down or front to back, and whether there are lots of pits which might indicate they're eating coarse material. But they don't tell us so much in terms of differentiating between, say, a leaf eater and a grass eater, as we can do with a mammal. But in the work that I was doing, for example, I remember when I was just starting to do this and learning how to do this as a PhD student, getting very excited once by seeing all these tiny scratches on the dinosaur tooth <laughs> and then realizing that actually the tiny scratches I was looking at were brush marks uh, in the consolidant that had been painted uh. on the tooth. <laughs> so the 
lots of things that you have to remember to do before you do the analysis. And unfortunately, so much of it comes from making those mistakes originally. <laughs> Certainly. Um, so you're at a museum. Uh, museum collections are an impressive thing, but they're oftentimes, at least here in the States, have gone through periods in which they're devalued or tucked away and people forget about them. But, you know, is this something where obviously they're valuable to your research? There's we, we collect far more specimens and data than we can possibly analyze in a lifetime. You know, how many discoveries are awaiting, uh, you know, are, are not necessarily in the field, but sitting in drawers? And, and do you think there's going to be, as you mentioned, there's a lack of data. Do you think there's, it's a matter of just combing shelves and looking for the right kinds of things and developing new uh, methods of analyzing it? I mean, how much value do you place in collections that are already there? So I think most museums would regard themselves, if you like, as libraries of nature. So they have a record of the natural world as been collected over the last couple of hundred years, uh, whether that's fossils or whether it's going out and collecting samples from coral reefs or tropical rainforests. Um, and that extends from herbaria all the way through to people who collect meteorites and things like this. Hmm. So they form a snapshot of what the natural world is like. It's not an exact mirror of the natural world because of the biases that curators have when they form those collections. Uh, but what they do have is they give an overview of the type of diversity that we see. And as you said, there's so much in those collections often that some things do get locked away, overlooked, and sometimes you just run out of time to do these kinds of things. So to give a dinosaur example, uh, in our collections here, since I've been at the museum about 15 years, we've found something like a dozen new species of dinosaur just within the collection. Wow. Uh, from things that were in plain sight, but just not worked on for a long time, or from things that were collected a number of years ago, but just not worked on yet. So, and that, I would say around a third to a half of all new dinosaur discoveries every year are made by going through existing collections. The other half are made by going out into the field and actually gen discovering new things in new holes in the ground. And I think that same thing actually applies to a number of other groups of animals and plants. Uh, I don't know if the proportion would be the same, but it's certainly the case that museum collections yield new species of all types of animals and plants all the time. And unlocking that information is one of the big jobs that we have, as well as going out and finding those genuinely new things too. So what we need is both. We need people going through museum collections, reassessing them, but we also need people going out and finding new things because there are still new things out there that are still not represented in those collections. Sure. And one of the things that really amazes me about the way paleontology has progressed over the years is just how well we can kind of zero in on the right places to look for fossils of certain types, the time periods, the combination of sediments. I mean, in, in, in your perfect world, I'm sure all of us have the, in an ideal world, I would love this, but is there a type of fossil you would just love to find or a kind of a smoking gun that would help answer these questions or a place where we should be looking for these sorts of things? That's probably a very nebulous question, but you know, given time and money, what would you like to see or hope for? So one of my big research interests at the moment is actually looking at dinosaur origins and how dinosaurs start to turn into the different types they turn into. And part of that is actually understanding how dinosaurs started to eat plants. Um, because the earliest dinosaurs are probably either carnivores or omnivores. Oh. Plant eating is kind of the special, more advanced state within dinosaurs. So although people think of T. rex as the apothesis of kind of uh, dinosaur existence, 
actually it's things like duck-billed dinosaurs and triceratops that are really, really good plant eaters. They're the ones that have really heavily modified the original dinosaur body type into these amazing forms. So T-Rex is basically uh, a steroidal version of an early dinosaur. It's kind of still on two legs. It's basically a meat eater. It's just turned into a very, very, very good meat eater. (laughs) Plant eaters have actually taken what was basically a meat eating design and completely rejigged it in lots of complicated ways in order to deal with what's actually a much tougher diet to digest and to make a living from. So what I would be really interested in seeing are the transformations that take place in those early dinosaurs that allow them to start moving away from meat to become vegetarians. So an early dinosaur, if you like, that has a mixture of characters of meat eaters and plant eaters, preferably with a fossilized gut content that had both in it, would be terrific as far as I was concerned. Saying that showed a genuine, if you like, transitional dinosaur between a meat eater and a plant eater. Mm. Something in that uh, ballpark would be what I'd really like to find. Awesome. That would be really exciting. And and when you mentioned this, that plant eating it was a, is actually a very specialized condition. And I think of just the size of some of these plant eating dinosaurs, where even the medium sized one, like you said, is much larger than the largest land living animal alive today, which is an elephant. You know, do you think the diet of plants may have led to that? And just from a hypothesis standpoint, I realize the smoking gun probably would never be there. But, uh, you know, I I think of plant eating birds like geese. They got big because they need to kind of ruminate and and ferment their, their food. No, that's exactly right. And I, I and a number of other colleagues think that the key to dinosaur large size is actually plant eating. Uh, you need a huge gut, basically. You need a big gut that you can carry around that can ferment food for a long time. And it's possible that some of these really big dinosaurs had very slow passage times through their guts in order to extract the most nutrition they possibly could. So I think that a number of dinosaurs evolved towards large size to become better herbivores. And actually some of the bigger meat-eating dinosaurs are simply co-evolving with those, (laughs) tracking them in size and trying to get bigger so that they can keep up with that moving food source, if you like. But I think all of the really gigantic dinosaurs, all of them, are herbivores. No meat-eating dinosaur weighs more than about seven or eight tons, whereas the largest plant-eating dinosaurs weigh 70 tons or more. So being a herbivore is all about being big generally. And your example of geese is a good one because birds are generally small. They're fairly small dinosaurs, but most of them eat things like um, uh, high energy foods like seeds or insects or other animals. Whereas those that specialize on things like grass and leaves tend to have to be a bit bigger because they need to carry around those guts to digest that cellulose and all that much harder to break down carbohydrate than the relatively easy protein fix that meat eaters get. Sure. Wow. Exciting stuff. So if people want to learn more about your research and what's going on, how do you recommend they reach out or find you? Uh, They can find me on the web. Uh, I have my web pages on the Natural History Museum's website and I also on Twitter as NHM Dino Lab. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Barrett, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Your research is Absolutely fascinating, and it makes uh, you know my early days of being obsessed with dinosaurs just so much cooler now that I can combine my love of plants and, and learn a little bit more about that. Great. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Well, you have yourself a great day. You too. Cheers. All right. Fantastic stuff. As always, I thank Dr. Barrett for taking time out of his busy schedule back in 2018 to talk to us about this subject. And it just goes to show you the forensic level of detail that paleontologists take really helps uncover amazing things about worlds gone by.
As always, check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast for all of the relevant links and for ways to support the show. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you can pick up a copy of my book. We also have customizable merch and stickers. If you're really feeling like kicking in, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. It is the best way you can help support this show, and I thank everyone that kicks in each and every month. There's some great kickbacks involved, so go check that out. Once again, that's patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. As always, hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.